never be another like Rio Bravo with its thundering story of raw courage against overwhelming odds and its once-in-a-lifetime combination of today's hottest star names. You've seen nothing like them together, and here at Rio Bravo, nothing can tear them apart. Not even a thank you do I get. Maybe you're right, Stumpy. Huh? You're a treasure. Well, <laughs> I don't know what I'd do without you. <laughs> well, I... Tired, aren't you, John T? Can fix you a nice hot bath. All I want is a drink. Then uh, this is all I can do for you. I told him you were one of the best. I'll tell you what I'm a lot better at, Mr. Wheeler. That's minding my own business. No offense, Sheriff. Where are you going? Get your hands off. I said, where are you going? You got no use for a man you can't depend on. One bad night and I'm done for. Better go easy on that stuff. That makes three you have. Yep. You'd be lying because that's what I am, a, a soft-headed idiot. There isn't any other explanation for staying around here and inviting myself into this. Around the bend. Around the bend. She'll be waiting. She'll be waiting. For my rifle pony and me. For my rifle, my pony and me. This has been one of the few peaceful scenes from the picture Rio Bravo with John Wayne, Dean Martin, and Walter Brennan here, and a new girl, Angie Dickinson. Tell them about Ricky Nelson. Oh, yeah, that's me. Come and see us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask ourselves, is it yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined today by my good buddy, Mr. Bob Fisher. Bob, hey, thank you Paul. for coming along and joining me today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I am really looking forward to this. This is fun. I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm having a ball doing this show, and I hope people are enjoying listening to it. Uh, I, I invited you on, and I asked you what you wanted to cover, and I just assumed we would be <laughs> doing Hard Day's Night or Help, <laughs> Yellow Submarine. Maybe you'd get a little nuts and we do Magical Mystery Tour or Let It Be. Nope. Surprise! What I got was, what John Wayne movie do you want to cover? Yeah. Here's, here's a list of about five of them. Which one do you want to yeah. cover? Yeah, and that was a tough choice, too. That's a really tough choice because usually whichever John Wayne movie I'm watching is my favorite John Wayne movie, you know. <laughs> so, uh, And I just assumed that once you got going on the show, somebody would have jumped in immediately and says, oh, got to do True Grit, got to do True Grit. And then I'm thinking, well, maybe somebody will do the shootest, but nobody's going to do Rio Bravo. And this is the first one of that bunch that's getting done. Yay! The 1959 <clears throat> movie Rio Bravo, uh, which is directed by Howard Hawks and stars John Wayne, Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, Angie Dickinson, Walter Brennan, Ward Bond, and John Russell. I think this was an excellent choice. I tell you, I am a fan of Westerns. I know you are as well. Absolutely, yeah. If I had to list my top 10 Westerns, what mm. I can say is it would be mostly populated with John Wayne and Clint Eastwood movies. Yeah, which, I which probably Which might would be the too, most yeah. common thing anyway. Right. 
But I would have a tough time paring it down because you got Rio Bravo, you have the Shootist, you have True Grit, you have She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Uh, I mean, there's just so many uh, Big Jake. There's so many John Wayne movies that I love. Oh, there's so many. There are so many good movies. But I like the whole genre itself. It would be, if you had to tell me, you know, pick your favorite 10 Westerns, that would be next to impossible. I could pick maybe my top five John Wayne movies or my top five Clint Eastwood movies or my top five Claude Aiken movies even, who's (laughs) also in this, you know, so... Oh yeah, I westerns. Him in the cast, you're right. Yeah, uh, westerns. Just the the genre itself is something that um, now it might be because of my generation. I think we could talk a little bit about the whole genre itself. Is that kids of my generation of uh, the '50s? I was born in '52, so 1959. I was seven when this movie came out, and I have vivid memories of seeing this, one of the few things my father and I actually had in common uh, were Westerns. And uh, we saw this movie in uh, a drive-in theater. And uh, I had my Mattel shooting shell 45 on my hip. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm right there uh, with my full cowboy outfit on, sitting on the tailgate of our 1958 Ford station wagon parked backwards so we could lay down and watch the movie. And uh, yeah, yeah, very cool. But that's what I was going to say is that people my age, when we were kids in the 50s and up to probably 64, 65 or so, when when cap guns and that kind of stuff in the Western started to fade a little bit, you still had Bonanza and you had that occasional Western on movie. But late 50s through early 60s was probably the peak TV was dominated by Westerns. I mean, it was all night, Westerns, every channel all night. And uh, I was right there in front of the TV watching them all. So I love the genre. Uh, you came along a little bit after me, but uh, you have a love for the Westerns as well. Yeah, well, you know, I love the fact that I can say I'm a little younger than you. Because <laughs> I don't get to say that on very many podcasts. <laughs> right. I was born in 62, so we're, we're 10 ah. years apart. Right. Uh, and, and I do take some issue with your statement that they died around 64 or so because 64, I only turned two and I have a love of the Western and, uh, you, got, you know, in my childhood, they were still coming out with, you know, that's the heyday of the Clint Eastwood Western. The oh, right. uh, Fistful of Dollars trilogy was in the 60s. Uh, and then, you know, we have High Plains Drifter, we have the Outlaw Josie Wales, you know, all of that stuff came out in my lifetime. I went, I remember seeing True Grit at Radio City Music Hall, uh, as well as, uh, The Cowboys, another John Wayne Western that I love. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, I'll agree with you then. We'll, we'll, we'll stretch it into the late 60s. What's that? Sorry? We'll stretch it into the late 60s. Even the early 70s, I think we can, I think we can stretch it as far as then, because then even in the early 70s, you know, you still had Bonanza on TV. You had uh, Gunsmoke was still on TV. I mean, I know they were bigger in the 60s, but they right. lasted into the 70s. That's true. That's true. A couple of them did last into that. Uh, in fact, as a kid in the in the 50s, uh, you mentioned Gunsmoke. Uh, the opening of Gunsmoke always had a, uh, a, a draw in the street, a shootout in the street, a uh, quick draw. And Matt Dillon would always draw second. The bad guy always drew first. And Matt Dillon drew second, and uh, but the bad guy went down, of course. 
But uh, I can remember literally as a little tiny kid in the 50s with my little cap guns on, my parents yelling at me, come on, come on, you're going to miss it to get there in time to have a draw to, to see if I could outdraw Matt Dillon. <laughs> and I had, I had to wait for him to actually flinch because my father would say, no, no, you drew too quick. You got to wait for him to draw. Okay, sure. So, yeah, Westerns, big part of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, they died out, and I think there's just a tendency for different genres to come in. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think we you know, we had it more in the 70s as Westerns were starting to fade. You know, there, there was a science fiction revival, you know, movies like The Omega Man, Planet of the Apes, uh, you know, Soylent Green, Silent Running, things Ooh, like that. Good, all, movies. All good movies. Omega Man. Haven't seen that in a while. I need to see that again. Charlton Heston. Yeah, well, I think three. I think I mentioned four Charlton Heston movies just in that part. <laughs> right, uh, Planet of the Apes. And, yeah, yeah, Soylent exactly. Green. Yes. <laughs> but and then you know then you know even into the later seventies then you know Star Wars kind of brought that craze even to a head, and right. then we had a lot of science fiction movies. And I think that's what what happens. Kind of there's an ebb and flow of these genres. And right now, I I would say the superhero movie is the dominant. Absolutely. Genre. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where the Westerns will, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where they dominated like they did in the fifties and sixties. Uh, but you think we'll have them come back? I know that there was at least one major movie. Was it this year or last year? That was, um, a pretty big budget Western. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name. Uh, yeah, I'm drawing a blank on it now, but it seems like every other year or so, every so often they'll try a movie, uh, Young Guns, not too long ago. I say not too long. It's probably 2006. <laughs> so well, it's funny how uh, I think, to a large extent, the the western as a genre has become more accepted by the film industry as as a more artistic thing than it once was. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now now when, when a western comes out, it's really not that shocking if it gets consideration for an Academy Award. Which, you know, back in the day, I don't think that was really the case. I don't, you know, I think it was a little bit odd when they did that. But I think Unforgiven kind of opened up the doors to that. Yeah, I think so too. And I think maybe even before that, you had stuff like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid early oh, another on. a huge favorite of mine. Yeah, just such a great, great movie. Um, but I think the, the beautiful thing about that actually, I think science fiction and the Western genre have in common is that they're a great platform to tell stories uh, of, of social or geopolitical or whatever. It's a good genre. And uh, just like Gene Roddenberry used early Star Trek to tell basically political uh, stories, I think, uh, you know, the Frank Gorshin episode of the black and white. I mean, we could go down the list of Star Trek episodes that had some sort of a, a moral story to tell, and they used... Uh, the Enterprise and that wagon train to the stars, as Gene Roddenberry called it, it was just a Western in space. <clears throat> and I think the genre allows you to do that, which Unforgiven did so brilliantly. Um, and I think Unforgiven might have changed Westerns for the modern era. I think that's to me is what happened when, when we saw Unforgiven, we, we saw, something that could have been real. There was no campiness. There was no joking. There was no, I mean, there were jokes. There were some funny moments in the movie, <clears throat> but it was a very serious take on a very serious subject. 
And uh, when he and Gene Hackman go up against each other towards the end of that movie, huh, building and building, that's a brilliant movie too. Anybody claim that one yet? <laughs> I, I'd have to look at the list, but not that I'm yeah. not that I'm not that I can recall. <laughs> well, I see. I'll that's get a very different movie from this one in in tone. That's for sure. Oh yeah. In fact, one of my notes on this is that uh, Rio Bravo, 1959. It's it's kind of a mixture of <clears throat> everything that was going on at that time period in media and theater, and uh, it's 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 almost a. I don't even know how to put it sometimes, but it's it's not campy. It's not, you know, Batman 66 campiness, but there is some camp to it. Um, they even get, you know, and how could you not? You've got Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson. you got to have at least one song. And I thought they actually melded those two songs in organically within the framework they had established for this movie. Um, that's kind of jumping ahead. We haven't actually started the movie yet. Uh, cause, uh, my first note on the whole thing is what a great opening to this movie, you know? Um, well, the, the opening of this movie for the first five minutes is, it's essentially a silent film. Exactly. Except that phenomenal. You know what? I should, it's I should so just, I'm not going to read the, the, the synopsis of this because this, this is a meaty movie. This is pretty complex. Yes, it uh, is. As far as the events of it, but I'm, I'm going to try and simplify it and just give a, uh, a synopsis off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, go ahead. And the movie opens up. Dean Martin is is a former deputy who fell in love with a woman, was jilted, and has now become an alcoholic. Uh, he goes into a bar where he's, you know, the source of uh, derision. Claude Akins is the brother of the local local mobster, we'll say. So what what happens is Dean Martin comes into the bar. He's he's known as either dude. Or Borishon, which is the Mexican word for drunkard, I believe. Uh -huh. uh, and Claude Aikens, uh, in in a, an effort to ridicule him, takes a silver dollar and flips it with incredibly good aim into a spittoon, so that Dean Martin would have to reach into this disgusting thing to get the silver dollar out to buy a drink. John Wayne, who's the local sheriff, comes in and prevents this from happening. And Dean Martin clocks him, and he's unconscious. They're getting getting ready to to beat on him when an in, an innocent man tries to stop it. Claude Aikens just pulls out his gun and shoots him. Shortly after, when John Wayne recovers, he arrests Claude Aikens, takes him to jail, and this whole movie surrounds the concept that they're waiting for the local uh, not sheriff, uh, I guess federal marshal, to come and take Claude Aikens for trial. Meanwhile, his brother is hiring people to do whatever they have to to get him free. So he ends up in the jail cell in the back of the jail with Walter Brennan, who's a deputy who's got a bad leg. And the thought process is if they get anybody else, then Walter Brennan's going to kill Claude Aikens. So that keeps them somewhat under control. But it's really just kind of the circling of the uh, people who are all ready to come and attack at the behest of Claude Aikens' brother. And how they go after. And eventually what happens is Ricky Nelson, who's a young, incredibly talented shot, signs on with them. So it ends up being Dean Martin, John Wayne. Or Dean Martin actually recovers and becomes back as a deputy, by the way. Even though he clocked John Wayne in the beginning of the movie. <laughs> so it's, it's John Wayne, Dean Martin, Walter Brennan, and Ricky Nelson uh, against the world. And then in the, in the nearby uh, hotel... Angie Dickinson, who they say is 22 years old at the time and was quite pretty, uh, 
she's falling in love with John Wayne and he's falling in love with her, but they they have some battle between them. And this this is a considerably long movie for the time it came out in 1959. It's about two hours and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot going on here. There's, there's a whole lot. And I think, you know, Bob and I will talk more about it as we go into it. But I didn't want to spend 20 minutes reading a synopsis. Right. right, so, right. Yeah, uh, it's a very complex. It's amazing what was going on. Every one of the characters basically had a story arc, had their own arc going on, their own story. Um, but while you would say John Wayne obviously is the, quote, star of the movie, it's almost like really it's Dean Martin's story that, you know, his arc of, of, uh, you know, getting it back together. He's a drunk. He's a town joke. He's a drunk. Well, I think, I think he's got a story arc and John Wayne has a story arc. Uh, Ricky Nelson doesn't really have so much of a story arc, nor does, uh, Walter Walter Brennan Brennan either. Yeah. Who's Walter Brennan is stumpy in the movie, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Stumpy. (laughs) Yeah. He's, it's, it's just so good. But, uh, you know, the thing that surprised me, I didn't realize I had to go back and look up. I did not recognize Angie Dickinson. I kept thinking, who is that? That's not Marie. That's not, it's not, who is that? And, uh, when I saw Angie Dickinson, it's not Maureen O'Hara. It's not, uh, what's her name? Sullivan. Sullivan. It's none of the redheads that John Wayne liked to be in movies with. It was Angie Dickinson, and I could—I didn't recognize her. It no, just she, she did not, not look, look like, like her. the Angie Dickinson that we knew from Police Story. Uh, uh, not Police no. Story, Police Woman, excuse me. Police Woman, no. Uh, she didn't look like Angie Dickinson that I recognized at all, and I just, uh, who is this person? So I had to look it up, and I was actually surprised when I read it. I went, no, that's not her. That's the wrong, oh, yeah, that is her. Wow, Feathers goes by the name feathers in the in the story but um but anyway back to the opening the thing that that like you say it was kind of almost like a a a silent movie the first five minutes of this movie there's not a word spoken except in background dialogue people like playing cards at a table or you hear the rumble the sound the ambient sound of the western town but there's no real quote dialogue nothing is happening as uh, we watch Dean Martin's character, dude, uh, decide whether or not to put his hand in the spittoon. And it's just brilliant because it sets up his character right in the beginning, first few minutes, without saying a word. You know a lot about his character right off the bat. And um, it comes a time later in the movie when when, uh, Dean Martin hits John Wayne again and John just kind of stands there and says, well, partner, you hit me twice. <laughs> there's not going to be a third time. <laughs> there's not going to be a third time, right? <laughs> I mean, there's stuff like that throughout this entire movie. Just great, you know, John Lane, John Wayne, you know, picking up a shotgun and doing that John Wayne baby walk towards the camera. It, it, just so many good classic character takes in this movie. And uh, I just watched it again last night before yes, this. And and I thought, OK, I got my notes here. I'm going to look at this again. And this time I'm going to do it critically. I'm going to sit here like a critic and I'm going to point out and I'm and I have three notes. I was sucked into this thing again and I'm laughing and I'm, you know, it's just so weird. Yeah, there's a thought process about this movie that I totally disagree with, that it's too slow moving for an audience of today. 
And I, I, I don't think hmm. so at all. I think the slow moving moments are full of character bits. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're, ve they're extremely entertaining if you're watching the movie. This is not really a movie to multitask with because there's a lot going on on the screen and you are going to miss some of the more subtle moments and you're going to miss some of the raw humor and, and you're going to miss what's going on in the action scenes as they develop because there are a fair number of action scenes in here. Yes. Uh, and so, there's several scenes, like you say, that have no dialogue in them. If you're multitasking, for example, you'd miss the whole scene of of uh, later where her, she's uh, Angie Dickinson's character, Feathers, is trying to keep the bad guys away from him so he can get a good night's sleep, John Wayne. And one night she just camps out in front of his door. He tells her not to do that anymore. And he comes down and finds her camped out in a rocking chair. He picks her up, takes her back upstairs, and takes her to bed before all hell breaks loose. But if you're multitasking because there's no dialogue, you would have missed that scene entirely. And that's a very, you know, important scene to the relationship of John Wayne and and Angie Dickinson in this thing. Yeah, uh, I was watching it, and you know, John Wayne was being his typical. You know, he was playing John Wayne, as he, he was being does. John Wayne. Yes. And yeah. and I think John Wayne playing John Wayne is underrated as an actor, because I do think he does a lot of subtle things to show the emotions that he's feeling, because he's right. He is generally playing a strong, stoic character so that you can't he can't if he over emotes, he's going to be going against the character that he's trying to play. So he has to be a little bit more subtle in how he expresses the emotion or the feelings that he has. A lot of times it's just a little body movement, the way he kind of turns his body or, or you know, twists his arm or does something just to show, you know, closing himself off and distance or whatever. But he is. He is doing those things. And if you watch him, he is acting throughout. And I, I find it uh, a little bit oversimplistic when people try to ridicule his acting. Because, oh, me too. Because I, I think he was a, a, an excellent actor, to be quite honest. Oh, honest. yeah. I think he's totally underestimated. I mean, a lot of people, I, I say underestimated or underrated or whatever, but it's hard to say that when you're such an icon as John Wayne. Everybody knows John Wayne. And I, I know people who love him because he's John Wayne and will just watch him because he's John Wayne. It doesn't matter. But I like John Wayne movies, whether he's doing westerns. And if you watch him when he was detective, you know, in some of his cop show movies— yeah, exactly. Um, those are great movies, you know? Yeah. Uh, the the man is totally underrated if you think he's just a, a one kind of character. And even in that, if you take the, the character that John Wayne is playing in this movie compared to the, uh, the character he's playing in The Shootist, it's almost like in The Shootist, he's playing the older version of all the Western guys he had ever played in his life. And what's nice about that is at the beginning of the shootist, they have a little montage of him as a gunfighter, and there is a clip from this movie in the yes. shootist. Yes, and you know that little thing—it's you know, you know, like certain superhero uh, geeks that we know will have little nerdgasms when a an Easter egg is dropped somewhere. You know, in a maybe in Supergirl, they show the fortress or Kalex or something. We go, oh, cool, ah. It, the same thing like you just said for Westerns, that little clip of previous John Wayne movies that they put in the shootist, that's brilliant. That's so cool. And it just adds to the to uh, to make the shootist even more believable and you're into the characters. So uh, it's, it's just. Yeah, I, I'm the same way with you, that if people say John Wayne is a one-dimensional actor, uh, no, I'm going to argue with you a little bit. 
But I think everybody in this movie, the beautiful thing about this movie is that every one of those main characters that you mentioned in this cast, right down the line, are acting themselves or characters that you know, but it's it's not, oh God, I'm really screwing that up, but it's like they're they're doing the character that you're familiar with, but it's not a caricature of them. They're not over, it never gets silly. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that that goes to the point, next point I wanted to make when I was talking about the uh, relationship between John Wayne and Angie Dickinson in the movie and where, where I was going with the acting. Uh, I think there's a lot of things in this movie that if you're not paying attention, if you don't put on that critic's hat and, st- and look at it carefully, you'll you'll just say, oh, it's the stereotypical thing. Right. But if you look at it more closely, you'd start to see, like, well, and again, for example, the John Wayne, Angie Dickinson relationship. As I first started to look at this with my critic hat on, I started thinking, yeah, there's, there's no real chemistry between them. They just kind of fall in love because they're supposed to fall in love in the script. But then when I was watching it more closely, that's not the case. There is a chemistry mm. between them, mm-hmm. and there is... A relationship that you see developing and you do see personalities there and John Wayne being the John Wayne actor he's fighting the fact that he is attracted to her and he doesn't want to be because he just wants to be dedicated to his profession he knows that it's dangerous that he might not survive it and he doesn't want to get into this relationship because he thinks it could end in disaster but and it's a woman himself. who he just came into-, into it I'm exactly. Sorry, I'm sorry, I jumped in, but she's it's the same thing that happened to the Dean Martin character that led him to his drinking. A woman came into town off the stagecoach. He fell in love. She didn't get back on the stagecoach until something else, she falls in love, whatever, leaves him or dies. And then he goes into this tailspin and drinks himself crazy. And John Wayne, part of the thing they were trying to get across is that <clears throat> this is too similar to that. And mm-hmm. John Wayne is thinking the same thing that you mentioned. He's sheriff of the town. That's where his things are. And to some degree, um, it plays in a little bit to the stereotypical, uh, you know, girls are icky kind of thing. You know, you're, you know what I'm saying? To the, to, the, to the little kids who are watching the cowboy thing. No, I'm a man and I don't want to wear a frilly and get into blah, blah, blah. Which, speaking of which, that was a very funny scene, and I thought they played that fairly well when um, the the hotel owner uh, had bought red bloomers for his wife or girlfriend. And John Wayne, that's how Angie Dickinson came in, and we see her for the first time, is when this hotel owner is holding up a pair of red bloomers at, to John Wayne as if he's wearing them. Right. And then Angie Dickinson makes a really nice, funny comment uh, that uh, she didn't, you know, think they were his or something. So I forget what the comment was, but at the time, you go, oh, Angie's, I didn't think Angie, because I didn't know it was Angie at the time, but I went, uh-oh, hot, <laughs> hot mouth. This one, here's the female right here. This one's going to be it. Uh, and I thought her character was, like you said, this was so good that if you just let it go, You'll think it's too stereotypical, but last night watching it, because I thought that too. I thought the same thing until last night, watching it a little more closely. The subtleties of their chemistry were there. She is trying to get to him. He won't make eye contact. He looks away. Little subtle moves, even to the point where he'll show up at a bar 
and she says, let me fix you a drink. And the way he puts the shotgun on the, on the bar at one point, he puts the shotgun to the side, which gives them an angle for the two of them to get to each other. At another point, when it was obvious she was coming on to him a little bit, he puts the shotgun between them on the bar, almost like a little bit of a gate, a little bit of a fence. Uh, you know, I'll take the drink, but you stay on that side of the and, bar and if, right now. And if you watch these movies with an eye towards the symbolism, I would have to say that that means that his job is what's between them. Yes, exactly. So good. Yes. And now, I've seen this movie probably, to be conservative, I'd say a dozen times in my life. Mm -hmm. And I had never, again, last night watching it's the first time I did it with kind of the, hey, let me, let me, I'm going to talk about this. First time I ever right. did it with that attitude. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I'm, so I was looking at it, you know, a little bit more closely trying to look for some of the subtext or, you know, the, the caricatures, stereotypes, whatever's going on in there. And it immediately hit me that this is kind of the classic high noon scenario. Yes. That, you know, the, the, the bad guys are coming, the sheriff is outnumbered, what's he going to do? And I'm not, you know, I, I can't say that uh, that it was a, a thought I had totally on my own because I started looking some things up. And they basically said this was John Wayne and Howard Hawks' answer to High Noon. Oh. That they didn't feel that the way Gary Cooper's sheriff in High Noon acted was appropriate. That hmm. he was seeking help from anywhere he could get it. And in this oh. movie, it's the same scenario, but very, very different in how John Wayne or, uh, or was it uh, John Chance... Chance. John T. Chance. John T. Chance. How he reacts to the situation because he gets offered help from Ward Bond. He gets offered help from Angie Dickinson. He gets offered help from his friend, the, uh, the hotel owner. Right. And he tells them all no. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want them to help him. Very uh, good. I see. I had not put that together. Qualified. Yeah. That's. And, he and says he that throughout the whole movie. Yeah. I had not put that comparison together between High Noon, the difference rather between High Noon and this, because the overall, like you say, the overall theme is the same. We got one bad guy in jail and the other guys are coming to get him and we got to hold him off. You're right, because John Wayne was basically telling, no, this is too dangerous and I want professionals. Professionals are coming. You're not ready to help me. In fact, the only one that was proven to be ready to help him is the was Ricky Nelson, who said, mm, I don't think so, when he was first, until Ward Bond was killed. Well, Ricky what Nelson was, as the story develops, originally Rich, Ricky Nelson says no. no. Then Ward Bond, who was his boss, gets killed. So right. now he wants to join Chance in his troop. And Chance says, no, when you had the opportunity, you didn't want to. Now you're just going on a motion. I don't want you. Yeah. But what happens is Chance gets himself into a bad situation. Uh, Ricky Nelson, who's Colorado, I couldn't remember his name for a moment. Right. Uh, he bails him out of the situation. And at that point, Chance makes the acknowledgement that you're in this too deep now. If you go to walk away, they're going to kill you. So now you have to be part of our group. Yes. You know, and there were two really good Ricky Nelson, or many, actually, I, I think Ricky Nelson was just terrific in this movie. Um, but two gun type uh scenes there's a scene early on when when uh chance john wayne is in angie dickinson's room and they're talking and then ricky nelson shows up behind them uh, because john wayne thinks that uh angie dickinson is uh a, a cheating gambler and that she stole and just cheated a bunch of money out of guys at the table 
and Ricky Nelson was now playing in that game. And he shows up to tell John Wayne, basically, because John Wayne told him he could keep his guns, but don't start any trouble unless you talk to me first. <laughs> so Ricky Nelson has realized who the real cheater is, and he's basically coming up to John Wayne to say, well, yeah, I'm going to go take care of that, but I told you I'd tell you before I started any trouble. So now everybody goes downstairs. But there was this really quick scene where Ricky Nelson walks up behind the cheating guy. And when the guy goes for his gun, Ricky Nelson pulls his out really quick. I mean, that I just wonder, how often did you practice? I'll bet when Ricky Nelson got this part, he wore those guns 24-7 until he showed up. He was practicing that draw all the time. It came out so quick, so flawless, exactly where he wanted it to go, calm, cool, done so well. And at that moment, John Wayne realized this is a pretty smart kid because a reckless kid with that much gun power usually wants to show off and he calls guys out, and makes them stand up so he can outdraw them and kill them. Ricky Nelson didn't want to kill and John Wayne made a really good point when Dean Martin said, is the kid any good? And John Wayne says he's so good he doesn't have to prove it. And uh, yeah, the other really good scene is when Ricky Nelson kind of bailed John Wayne out. They got towards, I guess, past halfway of the movie, towards the end, where uh, the whole thing's starting to come to head. And John Wayne uh, is kind of surrounded by three or four bad guys in the street. And uh, Angie Dickinson wants to go out and help. And Ricky Nelson says, no, 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 wait. When I get out there, you throw this pot through the window. Well, as soon as he gets out there, she throws the pot through the window. The bad guys look at the, you know, the noise, the distraction. And then Ricky Nelson reaches over, picks up John Wayne's rifle, throws it to him, draws his gun, shoots two bad guys. John Wayne shoots the other one. And I thought, whoa, such a well-choreographed scene. How many times did they have to do that? And Ricky Nelson looked so good doing it that I just thought, man, they either did that over and over and over again or he just practiced it a long time. Uh, but I was really impressed with how Ricky Nelson – handled his role in this in this um, movie and you have to for those of you out there who are so much younger <laughs> you may uh may know ricky nelson as garden party guy or something or the father of the nelson twins oh god yeah i know but uh ricky nelson was every week on primetime television for years was part of uh, one of the top 10 TV shows, obviously, Ozzy and Harriet. And he was the younger son. It was Ozzy and his... On the his, show and in real life. And in real life. This was a family. Ozzy and Harriet Nelson were real people who had two sons, Dave and Ricky, real people, and they had a real show. Now, obviously, the show was fictionalized. Their life wasn't anything like that. But as a kid... You know, I could take Ozzy and Harriet as a whole show. It, it, there were some funny moments, but Ozzy was an idiot. He was just a doofus. He had little or no brain power at all. Uh, you know, the stupid dad, long before stupid dad became a regular thing on sitcoms, uh, where the mom is the smart one and figures everything out and all. But Dave was the older, smarter son, and Ricky was the young, you know, son, the Elvis Presley lookalike. But he, for I, I, as I understand that he was the heartthrob from day one, from absolutely from the from the moment he appeared on screen, the fan mail was Ricky, 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 Ricky all day, Ricky. Um, and I 
really liked the end of that show because almost every show would end with Ricky singing a song. Somehow he would end up on a couch at a party somewhere and Ricky would sing a song. And I loved the last five minutes of Ozzy and Harriet for that reason. Sometimes the show revolved around Ricky in a talent show or, you know, uh, the kids are all coming over. Hey, Ricky, pull out your guitar. Uh, and you know, you might think really that's corny and way over the top and really stupid and sitcommy. And yes, it was, but the music was serious. The music was good. Uh, still one of my favorite versions ever of the song called Lonesome Town, uh, sung by Ricky Nelson, just a beautiful, beautiful song. Paul McCartney did a great version of it on his run devil run album. Um, I knew we'd get to McCartney at some point. Yeah, well, uh, oops, <laughs> did that slip in? But uh, it, you know, it's it, Ricky Nelson. I think just just went above and beyond the call of duty on this, and like Elvis, wanted to be taken as a serious actor, in spite of the fact that every week he's Little Ricky, he's Ricky Nelson getting up there to sing us a song. So watching this last night, uh, I was thinking of that, and when they did get to the part where Dean Martin and Ricky are singing a song. I thought they mixed that in fairly organically into the show, you know, into the movie. It it uh, it wasn't real hokey. It wasn't real corny. And um, Dean Martin is, you know, he's just one of the coolest humans that's ever walked on the planet Earth. Yeah, is Dean I think, Martin? You know, when you talk about the Rat Pack, people think Sinatra was the coolest guy, <laughs> and I have always had some issue with that because I think. <laughs> Sinatra always wanted to be the coolest guy. And I yeah. think if you want to be the coolest, you're automatically not. Thank you. Part of yes. being cool is not caring if you're the coolest. And and I always thought Dean Martin was the epitome of cool. Oh, Dean Martin was cool. There, It was just, every, he wasn't acting cool. Dean Martin was cool. And, you know, even watching this and that scene, the singing scene, how that scene starts, it's him laying back with his hat over his eyes. He's got his gunfighter clothes back on. He's cleaned up. He's not drunk, sober. He's got his blue shirt and his vest and his guns and his hat. But he's kind of laying back, you know? And the music starts and then Dean starts to sing. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is so cool. And it was really good song. And very kind of down and moody because of the whole thing. And they played it up well because the music had already started in, as a part of the theme for the trumpet. That Mexican band was playing that uh, that very haunting. The Death March. The Death March. Just so good that they, they built that whole thing up so well. And so here's Dean singing the song and the camera pans back and then Ricky Nelson is accompanying him on the guitar and singing harmony with him. And um, just so good, so good and right natural with it. And then Walter Brennan right after, says, well, that was good. And Ricky says, well, let's do something for you. And they do one other quick song that was kind of fun. And Walter Brennan got to play harmonica on it. And he really does play harmonica, by the way. So they weren't just, they might have been dubbing that in later for music, whatever, but he does actually play. And uh, it would not surprise me at all if that scene right there was recorded live and not lip synced at all. 
yeah. uh, that would not surprise me. And, and I yeah. think that they had the vocal ability to do it. They harmonized yes. together very, very well. Oh, so good. Else's. So good. So but it, but that... it is done. It, it's, and I, I don't know if we're doing it justice because it is done in a very organic way and it doesn't seem forced and it doesn't seem like some of these musical interludes in some older movies do where, where you're like, Oh my God, this, you know, no, this is it, not it's an in Elvis here movie. They have to have music. This yeah, kind this of was not fit Elvis. The moment. No, this was not like, oh, gee, we've got Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson. Let's have them, you know, sing a song impromptu in the uh, uh, in the bar while the piano player is doing some ragtime. It was nothing like that at all. It was so smooth and organic that it just seemed, it just seemed right. It just seemed well. Of course, that's what they would do. They're just waiting for something to happen. And uh, it, it was done so well. I was just really pleased. Um, now, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to think, the other thing I have after that is that John Wayne somehow went from a red shirt to a blue shirt. And I'm not quite sure when he changed. Did he have a little thing there with Angie at some point that we didn't know about? I, th- I think there is an indication that that may have happened. But they, you know, in 1959, they couldn't, be too overt about it. So I, right. I think that may be exactly the case. Yeah, because I think in the scene where she has her stockings on and she's getting ready to go down, she's trying to get some emotion out of John Wayne, right? And I think he entered that scene with a red shirt and later in the morning came out with a blue shirt. Now, I didn't check that, but I made the note today. I'm thinking, wait a minute, when did he change shirts? I don't remember because at one point he did change. There was an obvious thing and then both of them did because they kept making fun of Dean Martin smelling bad. So I think that was funny that Walter Brennan said, you need a bath. You need to go take a bath. So Dean went to take a bath and came back all dressed up. But at one point, John Wayne has a red shirt with his normal vest and stuff. And then at Another point later in the sh- the movie ends with him in a blue shirt, but there was no time because this whole thing takes cor- place in about two days over the course of about two, maybe three days. This whole movie, because I think right. there was really only one night, maybe two nights. I think two. Uh, I think it is two true. nights, right? Because the first night she slept out front of his door. Second night uh, downstairs across the stairs. But yeah, so two nights, kind of three days, two and a half, three days and two nights. Um, but wow, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but there no, is, that's, that's okay. I think that's fine. <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more. You know, we talked, we, we talked a little bit about John Wayne's acting performance. We talked a little bit about Angie Dickinson's. We talked about how cool Dean Martin is, but I want to talk about his performance a little bit. He's not only do I feel he's underrated in cool. I also think he was underrated as an actor. And I think mm-hmm. that cool, always presented itself. I mean, I remember as a kid watching Dean Martin play Matt Helm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I always saw him as kind of the American James Bond. Right. In those movies. Yeah, I agree. And I always thought That's... he exuded cool. And I think he does in this movie too. But I think in this movie, beyond just being cool, he shows vulnerability and he shows frustration. And and I, I just think it's a tremendous performance on his part. And I think the scene that's the strongest is there's a point where he's ready to give up. He's, he's you know, he, he feels like he's not good anymore. He's lost his ability. Colorado is on the team now, which is Ricky Nelson. So he's not really needed. The, the bad guys had been able to get the jump on him at one point, And he's very frustrated by it all. So John Wayne doesn't want to coddle him. 
because he thinks that'll just have the opposite effect of what he wants. So he, he's given him basically the, you know, the tough love kind of tough thing. Tough love, it's yeah. Like, John you know Wayne. You want to drink? Go ahead, drink. Pour him a drink. <laughs> right. And they pour him a drink, and it's the moment of truth for him. And he takes the shot, and he finally decides he's got to get through this. And he takes it, he picks it up, and he pours it very cleanly right back into the bottle yeah. without spilling a drop. And that's yeah. when he realizes that he's he he has the inner strength to get through this. Yeah. And I think that's a tremendous scene. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, um, that mixed with the opening scene. Uh, but you're because the opening scene shows this is a guy that couldn't get much lower. He's basically now on his hands and knees about to put his hand in a spittoon to get a silver dollar for a drink. Okay. Go from that to the scene you just described of him taking that shot and pouring it back perfectly and then showing us that his hands aren't still and then telling us that the thought, that's all he needed to do. He just needed to get that that close or something and his hands stopped shaking and um, just just so good. And he had another good scene when he actually shot the guy uh, that was hiding up in the rafters. Yes. Oh, another great scene. So yeah, it's, it's the, the when Ward Bond after Ward Bond offers to help Chance, yeah. he he gets shot in the back by one of Burdett's men. Dean Martin is I don't know maybe a block away, <laughs> and but sees it and takes a shot. Doesn't you know it's it, the man was running too fast. He's not sure. He thinks maybe he winged the guy. The guy runs into the bar that's filled with Burdett men and goes up to the second floor. They John Wayne and Dean Martin follow them in. Follow him in. And it appears that nobody in the bar was the shooter, even though dude was certain that it that it happened. So they start, you know, laughing. One of the guys takes a, a silver dollar, throws it into the spittoon. Uh, and dude is just about to give up then when all of a sudden he sees a drip of blood from the guy up above. And he, with tremendous precision, just very quickly pulls his gun, shoots the guy before he can do anything. So at that point... All the guys who were on the first floor are basically busted for having hidden this guy. <laughs> yeah. So they take all of their guns, and then in a final act of, I guess, redemption, dude makes the guy who threw the silver dollar into the spittoon go and retrieve it. Mm. And so I, good. Yeah. It, so good. One of the many great scenes in this movie. I, I, I mean, I know the two of us are gushing about this, and I think... Yeah, we really are. Probably, I don't know how many people are listening to this, but probably most of them have not seen this movie. And I definitely am going to tell. I'm coming right out. I'm not burying the lead. I recommend that you that you get a hold of this and you watch it because this is just a great movie. If you can watch on your computer, there is a site called Films.org that plays old old movies. You can stream old movies. Films.org slash Rio Bravo dash 1959, and it's two hours and twenty four minutes. <laughs> so. Uh, and of course, it's a still available. You can get it for a dollar ninety nine if you just want to buy it from uh, YouTube or iTunes or places. It is available. I wish it had been on like Netflix or something. That'd be easier. But uh, uh, I haven't had the DVD, so I'm good. Oh, lucky you. But uh, yeah, it it is such a good movie that um, you know it's even hard to even think because it isn't. It is a western. It's a genre western. But it's so much more. And it's a period piece in the way that it's shot. You see so much of the way movies were made in the 50s when you look at this movie. Because um, it's it's a, definitely a movie 
but there's a little bit of stage acting kind of in it. You know, there's a little bit of what you might think of theater acting. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, uh, things that are done that are obviously staged and choreographed and moved and people turn. And, you know, if you want to really look at it critically, you can sometimes almost see the direction. So if I had to say anything about it, negative at all, it's sometimes that they do, um, uh, uh, foretell what is about to happen. You know, uh, the music, the scary music will start a little bit too soon before he gets to the barn because you know, oops, don't go in the barn because the music saying something bad's going to happen. Well, but I think that was done with a purpose that wanted it to be more suspenseful, wanted you to, to they didn't want you sitting down and if somebody came out of the bar, just jump because they frightened jump, you. Right. They right. would rather you be suspense, you know, be, be in a moment of suspense because of it. And I think that to me, that's always a better way to go in these movies. Absolutely. So, so I, I don't necessarily sign on to the theory that those are negatives. Right. Well, I didn't mean to make it negative. I'm trying to think of something that if you have to say uh, it was predictable or something that is different than modern, sometimes modern storytellers don't use these techniques. Um, but it's like you said earlier, you really if you're going to watch this, you need to watch this uh, because it's not like there is a tremendous amount of dialogue in this movie. You know, um, oh, oh, one other thing I want to say is that the the. The, the relationship between Chance and Dude, John Wayne and Dean Martin, uh, is played out so well. Um, you know, it could almost be a modern buddy cop movie. Uh, even in little scenes, the scene where they're going to take a walk just to check the town at night. You take that side, I'll take this side of the street. Little nods, little things they did back and forth to each other within the story you get the feeling these two guys know each other really well. These two guys are close, you know, and um, I just I just really liked that relationship. And something I haven't talked about much yet is uh, two of my favorite character actors of all time, although Walter Brennan really did one character really was Walter Brennan, whether he was on The Real McCoys or in a thousand different Westerns. It's Walter Brennan. But my notes for Walter Brennan in this movie is Walter Brennan three exclamation points. That's he's just we know why he's there and he plays that part absolutely perfectly. Well, I'm going to take it even a step further than that, because yeah. you, you, you're anticipating. I, I think we're in sync here because that's the next place I was going to go to. Mm. Um, he is the part that you generally see in these westerns and you would term him as comic relief right because there's a little bit of a silliness to the way his character is he's crippled he's got a bad leg so he's not really as effective physically and and you can kind of just write him off as the stereotypical comic relief uh you know gabby hayes type character Right. But I was going to say think, the exact same thing. Gabby Hayes, Pat Brady. Right. You know, those guys. But I think as you watch this movie, you see that there's even more to his character. He isn't just that stereotype. There is more to it. <laughs> and they give him a little bit of a heroic moment. Because in the final shoot down, shootout, rather, they're right. pretty evenly matched with, with the <laughs> Burdette gang. And they're pinned behind these stone areas where if they come out, they could get shot. And... uh 
you know, leave it to Stumpy. He shows up. He gets a, a box of dynamite. <laughs> and he starts chucking the dynamite at the house. And either John Wayne or Dean Martin shoot the, the dynamite to cause it to explode, eventually causing this house to, you know, get filled with smoke and fire and whatever. And the Burdett group eventually gives up because of it. So he really is the guy who turns the tide at the end of the movie. Absolutely. And it's done so well because literally 80%, 90% of this movie, every time you see uh, Walter Brennan's character, he's in the jail cell and his whole job for this movie. Now, remember, cause we think the bad guys are going to come and try to break him out or whatever. So Walter Brennan's job is he's locked himself basically in the back, uh, kind of, uh, in the cell across from Claude Aiken's cell. So Claude Aikens has been captured early. He's back there. And Walter Brennan's task is if anybody gets in this jailhouse, you shoot him. And there's a couple of scenes where Walter Brennan uh, reiterates what his job is. And he's giddy about it. And it's just so good when he's telling that one guy, if they come in, I'm going to be putting my head right through your head. <laughs> Don't think I won't either. <laughs> it's it's. So good. Uh, laughing out loud. Comic relief, but not comic relief in the, um, in the, uh, uh, are we going to Addis Ababa, Mr. Luther? It's not that. It's not that, that over the top. It's, it fits. It's just like you could see that, yeah, that guy could be just with the rest of these. He's just so, so good at that. And, and like you say, at the end, when that shot comes and then you hear him cackle and the camera cuts over and he's standing there in front of the wagon, it's just so funny. And then, of course, they tell him that the wagon's loaded with dynamite. Oh, God, so good. So good. Yeah. Now, we, we touched a little bit on the music for this, but we really touched on it from the perspective of Dean Martin and uh, Ricky Nelson singing, which, right. again, I, I think is... It, it went in the movie really well, and it's great. But the the mood music moments, the orchestration, uh, which I don't see. Any, oh, the credit is Dimitri Tiamkin. I'm not really yeah. too familiar. Not with familiar him. at all. Mm -mm. But it is very effective. It sets the mood, and as Bob said, it might set it a little early. But I I see that as more of a plus than a minus. Right. So, and you really have to be listening for that. And again, I had my little critical guys hat on, so. You know, when things like that happened, I, I was perked. I was ready. Normally, I'm just in the movie, and you, you follow along with it. But I agree. I think the mu the music, uh, not only was it not distracting at all, it, it really aided. It really helped. It was just, um, it was perfect, actually. Uh, you knew when things were going to happen, and it helped those things along. And she had her own. I'm interested in hearing just the soundtrack to this, like listening to a soundtrack album on it, because I think... It would be. I think it would be pretty entertaining. I think it would be good. Yeah, I do too. I think it would be very listenable. And and most of the characters, if I remember, they most had their own little little theme bits. There was a, a song they played a, several times when Angie would walk on screen. Uh, Ricky Nelson had more of that kind of, you know, they play a little bit of a guitar sound for him. So there were different sounds for the characters, but I didn't enough to know if those were actual themes and they did did they do them i just happened to notice that twice dickinson came in they played that same kind of little piano jingle for her right. so I, oh interesting now but, something um, of note about i'd have to this, go back and actually listen to it again to see something about of note about this movie is apparently howard hawks was coming mm -hmm. off of a uh, 
a, a flop. I don't know what his last movie was before this, but I, I did read somewhere that he had his his movie before this had done very poorly, mm. and then he it took him four years between that one and this one. Wow! And apparently he was very very concerned about doing this one as well as he could. So obviously I think those those concerns were allayed, but uh, you know he he clearly was motivated to put his best foot forward on this one. And I think it's reflected by the fact that he personally has remade this movie twice. Once, very, very clearly. Mm. The second time, not quite as much. But and the, what were those two? The first one was uh, the movie El Dorado in 1967, mm-hmm. which was almost the identical story. And uh, John Wayne starred in that as well. Uh, then the dude part, which, again, very similar. Another drunken character uh, who was recovering. Uh, was played by Robert Mitchum. Mm. And the uh, Ricky Nelson part was played by James Kahn. And, and, and the interesting <laughs> thing is in, uh, in Rio Bravo, Ricky Nelson's name is uh, Colorado. Yeah. And they, they tried to hide the, the uh, remake factor of this so little that, <laughs> that James Kahn's name is Mississippi. <laughs> I was going to say Nevada, but all right. And, and I, I think the only, as I remember, the only difference is Ricky Nelson's character was extremely prolific with a firearm. Right. And if I remember right, and it's been a long time since I saw El Dorado, but uh, James Conn was unable to shoot a firearm successfully, but was very proficient with a uh, knife. Oh, okay. Instead, he would throw it's, a knife. It's been a long time since I've seen El Dorado, too. Yeah, that's that makes me want to pull it up now since... Uh... It's a remake. And what was the other one? The other one was in 1970. He made Rio Lobo, oh, which yeah. is a little less similar, but there's, there there are a lot of uh, a lot of things about it that were similar in that, as I recall. And it's been even longer since I saw that one. But the uh, they I'm trying to remember now. They, I think it was I think they said Jack Elam played the older, you know, drunken not drunken, but right you know, has well, been. There, there's an interesting looking man, wasn't he? Jack Elam. Wow. Popeye. Yes. <laughs> I always think of him, two things. I think of him from Cannibal Run. Uh-huh. And I think of him, he had, he had a TV series where he was the Frankenstein monster, uh, a sitcom called Struck by Lightning. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Wow. Pull that one out. Wouldn't that have 10 episodes? Maybe, if that many. Wow. Wow. Good reference. I'd have never, I would have never gone there. But now, as soon as those, you say, well, those it, are the things I remember him for. As soon as you say it, I see in my brain, I see a mental image of him now. Very good. But yeah, to me, it was kind of a weird-looking, scrunchy-faced Popeye-looking character with that one eye and the mouth all. He could all. He with just a little makeup, he could have been a two-face, you know, because half of his face always looked a little screwed up. Yeah. No. So th- but, this movie was also uh, effectively remade, although not technically. By John Carpenter in the movie Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. Well, John Carpenter. Wow. Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, but, you know, a lot of Westerns have had this. We were talking about this before we went on. A lot of Westerns have this basic idea. Not that closely that an old guy and a recovering drunk and, and a third-party guy. But the idea that the sheriff has captured uh, the brother or relative of the biggest, baddest, and now the biggest, baddest is coming to get the brother out. 
uh, seen it both in movies and, you know, we mentioned earlier all of the Western TV shows that dominated television in the 50s and 60s. I guarantee you this has been a Paladin episode. I Have Gun Will Travel. It's been Maverick. It's, I mean, I guarantee they have used this plot on every single one, especially like the, the, the TV shows that featured uh, uh, the sheriff maybe as the main character, Wyatt Earp or Lawman or, I mean, God, so many of them. There were so many of them, and I loved them all, especially Have Gun Will Travel. So there. So I have Bob, to get that in every show, too. I'm going to ask you, is <laughs> ask this yours? <laughs> is this Jaws? Now, do you know the Jaws scale? Have you listened to, to hear yes, the I have. scale is? Yes, I have. Sorry? Yes, I have. Okay. Yes, I have. Well, then and... I'm not going to say it for your benefit, but I am going to say it for any listeners. Yes, Because I always means. have to make it clear this is not my reviews of the movie Jaws, with the exception of the actual movie Jaws. Exactly. Because uh, that one I consider to be an all-time classic, one of my favorite movies ever. And ever. that is the ranking that I would have to put for Jaws. Jaws 2, however, now we start going astray from the actual movies. Uh, <laughs> the Jaws 2 right. ranking, you're saying really, really good, worth, worthy of multiple viewings, not very many flaws at all. You know, real solid movie. Jaws 3, you know, watchable, but nothing special. And Jaws 4, you know, total crap. Is this Jaws? Oh, absolutely. It's... A, it's, it's... I'm going to fall short of actually the iconic Jaws, but I'll give it a Jaws too. I, you know, for me, it is, it's watchable over and over again. It's fun. It's classic. If, if you want, you know, a classic iconic John Wayne, uh, it's as good as you're going to get. It's as good as anything else he's done. It is John Wayne. It's Dean Martin being super cool. Um, Yes, it's definitely Jaws, but I'm going to stick to Jaws 2, though. I am, and I thought about this a lot, because I wanted to give it an iconic, yes, it's Jaws. It's the, it's it. But it, I think that has to be reserved for those that are, you know, beyond reproach. So uh, while it is a great, great movie, it's one of my favorite John Wayne movies, I'm going to stick with the Jaws 2. Okay, and I am not going to be quite as generous to the negative as you because mm. I'm, I'm going to give it a Jaws ranking. Okay. I'm putting this as one of the top movies, one of the best Westerns ever. Uh, I'm not saying it is the best Western ever. I'm saying gotcha. it is one of them. Understood. It is on the list. There's no question about it. And if I was making my movie, my list of my top movies of all time, uh, I, I would definitely, you know, this one would be on the list somewhere. I couldn't tell you where it would fall. I don't, you know, it's not in my top 10, probably not even in my top 20, but it's probably not much lower than that. Mm-hmm. I'd put it in my top 40, probably top 30. But when I start thinking, if you just boil it down, even to just Westerns, there's probably eight or nine that I like better than this. Um, so it, I don't know, I'm man. Thinking, I'm now, thinking maybe I have five. Yeah, because now I'm thinking maybe it is in my top ten westerns. Because, but then I've, I think I've you no know, doubt it's in my top ten westerns. No, question. but then there's you know that you got four Clint Eastwoods that have to be in there. You've got three or four other John Wayne. So it only leaves room for a couple of movies. It by really other does. It really just you know. So <laughs> but, does it? But, but I could. I can, It wouldn't be much for me. If to we're be going on the John Wayne pantheon of westerns. Oh, then it's definitely a top five. It's a classic. Well, I'm, I, I'm, my, my, I'm just trying to think. The best John Wayne Westerns ever. And I'm not going to, in no set order. Right. The Searchers. Mm-hmm. True Grit. Mm-hmm. 
The Shootist, mm-hmm. Red River. Mm. I'm starting to run. I'm starting. Maybe she wore a yellow ribbon. Yeah. But I'm, I, but I'm not I'd sure. This, you know, this one's right in there last, with them. Yeah, this would be right above both of those last two. I'd put this above Red River and Yellow Ribbon. Uh, Shootist and True Grit. Those are probably my two favorite John Wayne movies: True Grit and and uh, uh, Shootist. I'm thinking. I'm thinking John Wayne movies. I'm ranking this number four all time. I'm probably putting of, of in the, the westerns because I'm going to put the yeah. Shootist, True Grit, and The Searchers above it. Oh, Searchers. Ooh, Searchers. You're right. Searchers is in there, number three. So number four. Yeah, you know, so under that scale, this becomes, yes, it's Jaws. Here we without, go. I won you over. Yeah, without question, this becomes, <laughs> yes, it's Jaws <laughs> on that scale. Well, and I even when think, I start know, thinking about room it. There's enough. As, as, I don't want to dilute greatness. I don't want to yes. start calling everything great. Yes. And I think on this show, I, I've given a fair amount of thought to most things, and, I, and I'm not so quick to give the Jaws ranking to things. Mm-hmm. But I just think this is a great movie that holds up over the test of time for, you know, 50, 57 years now. 57 years, and I enjoyed it as much last night as as I ever have. And exactly. even trying to look at it critically. Uh, and I find... I, Precious few flaws, and even the flaws I find, I'm not even sure they're flaws. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. Uh, So I think you're right. I think on on those conditions, because I was trying to be so critical that, you know, take off a little point for that if it's not perfect. But, um, yeah, I think even if you just strict it to to Westerns, it has to be in the top ten of all. Um, Even the great John Ford classic Westerns. um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's Jaws. There you go. <laughs> God. You know what? Anybody who's seen this movie or anybody who goes out and sees this movie at Bob and I's uh, suggestion, excuse me, uh, I'd be curious what you think. Mm-hmm. And I have the email address, jawspodcast at gmail.com. Let me know. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think of it. I'm curious. Yeah, but I'm I, curious too. I am cause... absolutely locked in that I believe it's Jaws. That it's right. and, and, and I'm very curious too because... Uh, Westerns are not, you know, at the top of everybody's thought process nowadays. Westerns, periodically, one will come out or this or that. But uh, I look back at even last, um, some of the biggest email received of uh, the DC's Legends episodes of of this past season was the one that featured Batlash and the Westerns. I mean, uh, I said Batlash, I meant Jonah Hex. Yeah. So I think there is that desire for good Western out there. So um, look at the popularity of the show Firefly. I mean, it's popularity after its cancellation, but look at the popularity of that. And that show, no question about it, is a Western. That's a Western. It's it's a science fiction Western. Exactly. And a great one. Uh, uh, So so I think there is an audience for it. I think to some extent people have gotten closed-minded a little bit on mm -hmm. Westerns. Oh, they hear Westerns. Oh, I don't like that. But I right. think if they if they keep themselves open minded and they watch them, they'd find they'd be happily surprised. Right, and I think I, I also heard uh, I was telling some friends of mine that I was going to be doing this and talking about this, and uh, one of my friends thinks, well, he didn't like westerns because they're they usually tend up being you know too racist and too cowboy Indian and they put everybody in bad light. And this, I think, well, you just haven't seen enough westerns, have you? Because yeah, there is a few that do that. There are some that will. But uh, none of that was in this. This was this was uh, straightforward, and 
I just think it's a great genre. And of the genre, this is one of the best. So that's what I can say. All right. And uh, I, can't, I can't disagree in the slightest. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for coming on with me, Bob. It's always a pleasure when we get to talk. Oh, I love it, Paul. It's always great talking to you, so, buddy. You know, we'll we'll do this again soon. Maybe we'll do one of those other movies I talked about earlier, or maybe yeah. we'll hit another John Wayne movie. Who knows? A lot of movies out there. That's uh, absolutely correct. Uh, what what have you been doing lately? Why don't you let everybody know? Uh, well, you can really find me most of the time over at the Superman Forever radio podcast at supermanforever.com. That's really my main podcast. I fell, fell a little behind for the holidays and everything that's been going on, but got a couple of episodes coming out towards the end of the year and then we'll start fresh for the new year coming out. And, um, but that's really pretty much it. I'm a Superman podcaster for the most part. Until you start that Western podcast. (laughs) Until we get going on the Western one, right? Yippee. And I even like genre. It was just when you say Westerns, not just, it doesn't have to, to me, just have to be these kinds of Westerns. I love the singing cowboys, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, Tom Mix, the old Westerns, those serials and the, you know, the sons of the pioneers sitting around the campfire and saving the ranch and the mixing of horses and Jeeps and cars. And oh, I love it all. It's, there's so much good in the Western genre. Absolutely. So, thanks for inviting me on, Paul. I had a great time. Appreciate same, it. Same here. It's my pleasure. I look forward to next time. Mm-hmm. The sun is sinking in the west. The cattle go down to the stream. The red wing settles in her nest. It's time for a cowboy to dream. Purple eyes in the canyon, that's where I long to be with my three good companions. Just my rifle, pony, and me gonna hang my sombrero. On the limb of a tree coming home, sweetheart darling, just my rifle pony and me. Whippoorwill in the willow sings a sweet melody. Riding to Riding to Amarillo Amarillo Just my rifle Pony And me No more cow No more cow To be roping To be roping No more stray No more stray Will I see Round the bend Round the bend She'll be waiting be waiting for my rifle pony and me for my rifle my pony and me <laughs> say that's real pretty you go on and play some more why don't you play something i can I 
wish I was an apple That's a good one Hanging in the tree And every time my sweetheart passed She'd take a bite of me She told me that she loved me She called me sugar plum She threw her arms around me I thought my time had come Get along home, Cindy, Cindy Get along home, Cindy, Cindy Get along home, Cindy, Cindy I'll marry you sometime I wish I had a needle As fine as I could sew I'd sew her in my pocket And down the road I'd go Cindy hugged and kissed me She wrung her hands and cried She swore I was the prettiest thing That ever lived or died Get along home, Cindy, Cindy Get along home, Cindy, Cindy Get along home, Cindy, Cindy I'll marry you sometime